0: You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin.
1: Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. I'm so thankful to have you here with us today. And we have an absolutely very special guest for me. This is a dear friend, Scott Highmark. Scott is out of the entire financial industry. If I had to pick one hero, somebody that I look to as a mentor, as a friend, as a brother, somebody that can help me become a better steward of the industry. Scott would be that man. And so, I'm so thankful he's joining us. His firm, Mosaic Family Wealth, is a registered investment advisory. You've heard me talk about those in the past. They manage $1.3 billion for clients, and they have a really, really distinct approach. So, I'm very excited to talk about that today, and
0: we're going to jump into it. So, Scott, thank you so much for being here. Well, Tommy, thanks for having me. Thank you for the kind introduction. I could say many of the same things about you, and you've been a real inspiration to me, and it's just a joy to be on this journey with you.
1: Uh, It's fun to have iron sharpen iron, and uh, I feel like in our case, it's usually iron sharpening candle wax, but (laughs) you do a really good job of it, so thank you. Thank you for all of that. And Scott, we're going to talk about your firm. We're going to talk about the really distinct strategies that you deploy for clients and the way that you actually help them think far beyond just simple dollars and cents. And and I absolutely love it. We're going to get to all of that. But you didn't grow up thinking you were going to start out someday and be this world-class financial advisor. In fact, I happen to know as you were growing up, you were very, very serious into sports. At what point did that start for you? How old were you when you realized like, I'm pretty good compared to the average guy out here?
0: Well, you know, that was an evolution for sure. And I just always gravitated to sports and athletics and was just kind of a hyper competitive kid. You know, we'd go out in kindergarten and I'd be the one like saying, who's the fastest kid at recess in kindergarten? And it just came very naturally to me. And and sometimes in my life, being hyper competitive has not served me well. And my wife would say that and my kids would say that at times. And I kiddingly, again, not not even in the same stratosphere as uh, Michael Jordan. But I I love The Last Dance, the 10-part series last summer during covid when Michael Jordan, they asked him if he had a gambling problem. And he said, I don't have a gambling problem. He goes, I have a competition problem. And I can kind of relate to that because I even in you know being a little kid, everything was a competition and it just made me feel alive. And so but it wasn't really till I played a lot of different sports growing up and I lived in Memphis, Tennessee before we moved to St. Louis. I was about 13. And candidly, in Memphis, I was a very average athlete, very average basketball player, but but Memphis is known as a basketball hotbed, still is. And when we moved to St. Louis... i was
1: just going to throw out, yeah. Indiana used to be a basketball yeah. hotbed. So I'm hoping someday we'll recapture that title,
0: but we'll get there eventually. Well, quick story. My dad grew up in Indianapolis, so I grew up an IU fan. I mean, a huge Hoosier fan. Damon Bailey was my idol growing up. I wanted to be Damon Bailey growing up and uh, never quite achieved that. But I always grew up wanting to play for the Hoosiers. My dream did not come true. I have a good Bobby Knight story, I could tell you, either today or offline. But yeah, so long story short, I moved to St. Louis. And just honestly, the the basketball in St. Louis was not as good as Memphis. So I went from being a very average player in a big community like that to being one of the better players in St. Louis. And you know how it is, it's kind of like that, that book, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, when people start saying, hey, you're pretty good at this. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, maybe I am. And it just kind of fed that competitive fire. And that's kind of just took off from there.
1: I love it. So you have even talked about it, Scott, if you you kind of had a prism in life of winning and losing that really started from that sports angle.
0: Yeah, I, I call it my theology, if you will, as a kid and as a young adult was really, there are winners and losers. And it started at the playground in kindergarten and went all the way through high school. And I was very, very fortunate to win a state championship in high school. And then I went to college and I, again, I had this theology of there are winners and losers and the winners just kind of work harder and maybe a little smarter or a little more athletic. And then I kind of hit a wall my freshman year at St. Louis University where a lot of things went really poorly. My team was ended up being five and 23. My coach who recruited me to St. Louis university got fired. My best friend on the team was the coach's son. So he ends up transferring the coach who recruited me left. And honestly, it just threw me for a whirlwind, Tommy, because it destroyed that theology. Cause if I believe that, then what does that say about me? That I just, am I now a loser? What is my theology? And I kind of went on this faith journey to really understand that my identity wasn't just putting a leather ball in a round basket. And I had some great mentors and coaching both on and off the court that really helped me strengthen my faith and my identity and my values outside of the game of basketball. But it was a real eye opener when you're the prism of life, as you say, or the theology gets challenged and broken down. And I got broken down pretty good at 18 or 19.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate how you've taken that adjustment that occurred for you. And you've actually integrated that very heavily into your firm. So I'm sure we'll circle back to that. And I'm excited to do that. But I do want to talk about some you know, pretty incredible wins along the way. I mean, you mentioned the, the high school state championship, which was a first for your school, as well as St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. And to be in there with people like Mark McGuire and all these other incredible athletes, I'm certainly not anywhere near any list like that. In fact, there were coaches that were very excited to get me excited about a different sport just so I wouldn't come try to be on their team. And <laughs> it's uh... Been great. But you also had some, you know, some pretty memorable losses. And, you know, I go back to the NCAA tournament. The Billikins hadn't made the tournament for decades until you came on the scene and helped lead the team to the tournament. And then the next year you go back and you guys were, I think, 23 and five. This year, I mean, just absolutely crushing it. What a turnaround from five and 23 to 23 and five a couple years later. And you end up in the NCAA tournament playing against the one and only Tim Duncan.
0: And what was that like? It was really amazing. The turnaround, as you say, the to go from five and 23 to 23 and five and being ranked in the top 25 and playing the NCAA tournament. And I remember... I remember distinctly walking out on the court in the NCAA tournament and we were the very first game of the tournament, like the Thursday, 1120 Central game on CBS and Jim Nance and Billy Packer were doing the game and they were sitting right there at the table. And as I'm warming up and I thought, holy smokes, this is big time. I got Jim Nance and and Billy Packer, the voice of college basketball on CBS, and we're playing Tim Duncan. So it was a little overwhelming at first, um, but we actually, that was in the second round. We actually beat Minnesota in the first round. And so to advance in the tournament, to, as you said, it had been decades since St. Louis U had been there and then get an opportunity to play Tim Duncan. And we played him pretty close. It was like a four or five point game. You know, what are you going to do with Tim Duncan? He had 30 points and 19 rebounds. So we had no answer for him, but there's a funny picture that friends of mine send me periodically Tim Duncan was named one of the top 50 players of all time in the NBA. And there's a big coffee table book that the NBA produced for that. And they have a big glossy shot of all of the players in the top 50 all time. And the shot that they happen to use for Tim Duncan is him dunking over me in the NCAA tournament. And I'm literally standing there just watching him and his feet are like at my mouth. So periodically I'll have friends that'll send it to me and say, Hey, why didn't you jump? Or, you know, they'll make fun of me. But that was my claim to fame is I actually made the book, but it was because I was dunked on by Tim Duncan.
1: I cannot wait to go Google search that after our <laughs> recording here today, Scott. So uh, you can count me among those friends that will periodically send yeah. you that picture. Sure. You can always remind me it's coming from a guy that didn't even make it into playing in college after an uh, illustrious high school career. So (laughs) that's great. That's great. You know, so Scott, you're having a pretty incredible success on the basketball court at the time. I know you were a finance and marketing major and probably hit this crossroads coming out of college of, hey, is there a way for me to move on and continue to play basketball at a professional level? And I know you ended up playing overseas for a bit. So how did that decision-making process kind of work? Was it a dream to play in the NBA? How did all of that go down?
0: Yeah, for sure. Every young boy like me, you know, dreams of playing in the NBA, playing professionally. I graduated in 1995 from college and there was actually an NBA lockout that summer. And so I got invited to a few of the NBA summer league camps with a few of the teams And I planned on doing that, but there was a lockout. So I didn't have the opportunity to do that because the NBA was shut down. And so I did have an opportunity to go play overseas, which I did do. I played in the Continental Basketball Association, the CBA, which is now the G League. I played in Australia, New Zealand. So I wanted to take a shot, Tommy. I didn't know if I could actually make a living doing it. I didn't know if I was actually an NBA player. Candidly, I probably wasn't. But I just wanted to scratch that itch and see if I could actually do it. And so I call that the, I was a basketball vagabond for about a year, kind of jumping all over the world and trying to make a living. And it was honestly, it was a great experience. I mean, I kind of lost a year in terms of my career development, but I wouldn't trade that for the experiences.
1: And you have no regrets of wondering, could I have made it?
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I gave it a shot and had a blast doing it. And I felt like I left it all on the floor and have no regrets whatsoever.
1: I love that. I love that. So, Scott, along the way in that time, somebody actually from your church comes to you and says, what are you going to do after basketball? And it's not just somebody.
0: So tell us about that. Yeah. By the grace of God, I went to church with the Edwards family. Ben Edwards was the CEO for 30 years of A.G. Edwards and his son, Tad, who succeeded him. And they just kind of caught me during the kind of passing of the piece during a break at church and said, What are you doing now? And I said, Well, I'm trying to play basketball overseas. This is right after my senior year. And and they said, Had you thought about getting in the financial industry? And I said, not really. And they said, well, if you ever have any interest, you should call us. And I said, Great. And I took their card and I went and played basketball and I come back, you know, a month or two later. And Tad Edwards says, Hey, how did the basketball go? I said, fine. He said, well, if you're ever interested in getting in financial services, you should call me. And I took his card again, said, great, thanks. And didn't call for the second time. Third time happens. I run into him again at church and he just looks at me and goes, are you going to ever call me? And I thought, you know what? I should probably call this man. I have nothing to offer as a 22 year old man. He's the president of, you know, it was the largest brokerage firm not headquartered in New York City at the time. And a, a very sweet, values, faithful family. And so, again, by God's design, providence, I ended up starting and building a career at A.G. Edwards because I ran into this family at church.
1: And through that, eventually, you actually broke away and launched your own firm as a registered investment advisory. And our our listeners who have been with us for a while, they know kind of my bias and partiality to RIA firms, as we call them, because you're functioning as a true fiduciary who has to do what's best for your clients. And I think that's the only way to go. Along the way, eventually you launch your firm, Mosaic Family Wealth. So, how did that transition happen?
0: Yeah, that was a whole process of a lot of diligence, prayer, deliberation. After being inside a big wirehouse brokerage firm for 20 years to take the leap to start our own RIA, an independent firm, was quite scary. But it just became evident to me what you're saying is that we had to be on the right side of history. We had to be a full fiduciary on behalf of our clients. We didn't want to be anywhere where we'd have conflicts or manufacturing products. We wanted to be a true advice giver, an objective advice giver. And we had a vision for what could be even deeper than that. And so... It honestly became a calling. Like by the time we actually pulled the trigger to do it, it was very scary, but we had so much conviction that that was the right thing for our clients that in our employees that we could not do it,
1: and I know Scott, some advisors who are leaving their large, you know bank based firm or wirehouse, as we call it, sometimes some advisors leaving those, they have the rights to actually take their clients very easily. Other advisors, those clients are really owned by the firm, and it's a very controlled process by which clients are allowed to reach out to you. Which of those governance models were you
0: all under? Yeah, we were under what they call the protocol. And so the broker protocol allowed us to contact our clients at the previous firm and Communicate to them what we were doing, why we were doing that, and then give them options and say, You're happy to stay at the firm that you're at. You could find another advisor if you have somebody else you'd want to consolidate your assets with, or we'd love to have you come with us. And so that's kind of how you have to present it. But we were not prohibited from having contact with those people and very. You know, very fortunate that most of those people decided to come with us.
1: That's excellent. I've always been such a huge fan of the broker protocol because listeners, what happens is some firms will try to have a non-solicit or a non-compete for advisors that leave. But here's the issue. The financial advice relationship is so personal that I absolutely believe if we as an industry start with what's best for the client, We would always say the client should be able to choose who to work with, period. And if the client wants to stay at the prior firm because they have a comfort level with that name or whatever it may be, or they don't want to have to do some paperwork, then let the client stay. But if the client has this deep felt trust in their advisor then we as an industry need to let that client go. And the only question for me has been, should that advisor have to then pay for that relationship? Or should that advisor be able to take that relationship for free? I won't try to debate that today. I'll leave that for internal debates. But I've seen more and more firms, Scott, that have actually left the broker protocol. And it's been really disheartening for me because I thought it was one of the most important right steps our industry was taking to really put the client first.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And the broker protocol came in probably 30 years ago to prevent firms from suing one another because all they were doing was somewhat horse training clients and advisors and so they kind of came to a truth that they would no longer be litigious as litigious. But as you said, many firms are getting out of that because they want to protect their firms and what they have built, the infrastructure and such. But as you said, at the end of the day, the clients, they're the key decision makers. And it's going to be hard for any court or jurisdiction to prevent a client from working with who they want to work with, particularly in a professional services setting. Now, whether or not, you know, a departing advisor should pay for that the revenue from that that you can make a good debate on either side as an entrepreneur and somebody who's like you and I that try to invest and spend a lot of resources to create a great experience, I understand the thought, but at the end of the day, as you said, the clients clients win the clients rule the day and we're here to serve them. Absolutely. One of the things that
1: a firm that I'm on the board of decided to implement, which I really appreciated their structure was, If you want to leave and take clients with you, first, we don't have non-competes because we want you to be able to go anywhere and make a living for your family. Please don't take our trade secrets because we do have some proprietary things we do around here, and we don't want the rest of the industry to know these. So please don't take those. And if you take clients please just pay a fair price for those clients because we may have staff that we now have to downsize if you left or, you know, any of those things. And I love that open-handed approach. And as long as people come into a firm with those expectations, I think it's very easy to operate then. And what I kept seeing in the industry, Scott, is without a viable alternative, for many firms, the option is either stay here or get out of the industry. And that's not a viable alternative. And I I think that just, as much as people think they're trying to protect their business or whatever it may be, I think they're really pushing those advisors into a very desperate place where they do things like leaving in the middle of the night, sneaking away, taking clients without paying anything for them, even if maybe a fair approach would be to pay something for them. But with no other alternative, desperate people often do desperate things. And so I think the industry is really, the firms that try to enforce those uh, have really pigeonholed people into this desperate position that it just doesn't make sense to me. But Anyway, enough on that. Uh, Let's talk more about Mosaic Family Wealth, because out of all the RIAs out there, all the independent advisory firms out there, the way that you have structured things at Mosaic, I think is just absolutely the industry cream of the crop leader everybody in the industry should be looking to Mosaic for how they're going to go grow and build their firms. And so I'd love for you to kind of unpack what it is that you all are doing at Mosaic that's
0: so special. Well, thanks for asking that. And again, I, you and I have talked a lot over the years and I've learned a lot from you and your approach. And I think that's why we get along so well, because I think we think about things a lot of the same ways. But I have to tell you, in terms of how we approach things, came from a seminal moment in my life reading a book called halftime by Bob Buford. And in that book, Bob Buford was a very successful cable TV operator in the late nineties. And he kind of had a epiphany or a faith journey. And he came to realize I've had all the success in the world as the world would define success but I really want to pursue significance in this next season of my life. And I read that after about almost 20 years of doing, being a financial advisor that immediately gave me the language. That's what I want to do. The rest of my career is I want to help high capacity, successful people pursue success, but also pursue significance and move beyond success as the world would define it and truly align their values and their wealth to what we call true significance. I just wasn't as inspired to help wealthy people get wealthier. It was the why behind it. And so we've built our whole firm around that notion of moving beyond success to significance and creating our whole client process around that. Our whole team rallies around that. That's how we hire people that have that high IQ, but also the EQ And are compassionate and really want to talk about the value system and how that drives their money decisions so that's just a little bit about kind of our psychographic profile of mosaic and what we're doing and we have a whole client process that we've digitized and created our whole firm around so scott give us a couple stories of some big wins
1: That your team has gotten to be a part of, on behalf of clients, really helping them move from success to significance. And and we don't need names. I know you all work with some pretty high-profile people. We don't need names, but just even some stories would be awesome.
0: We actually keep a significance journal where we write down these stories anonymously so that we can share them with our team. So that they get to hear the stories and the impact that we're making with clients And again, we're just vessels that we believe God's using us as vessels to do this. So it's nothing magical that we're doing. But through our process, we've had clients, you know, say, you know, the most important thing in my life is to spend time with my family and the people that I love. So as we unpack that and they say, you know, the one place that we feel connected with my our adult children is Naples, Florida. And that's where my kids love to be. And now they're scattered all over the country and we have grandchildren and we just want to be together. And so we just started brainstorming like, okay, if this is what you really value, spending time with your family, your immediate and extended family, how do we create more of that, create more of that time? And again, nothing magical here, but we said, maybe we should use some of your financial resources to buy a family gathering place where you know your kids and your grandchildren will come. And they're like, well, does that make sense financially? And the answer is, what is that worth, right? To the extent that you can spend a week or two with your family in a place that they desire to go to, and again, they have the resources to do it, we're telling them, it's kind of the opposite of what you think about financial advisors. We're saying, no, you should spend that money. The ROI on that is so much deeper than us investing that money and doubling the money over the next seven or 10 years. And so it's just that whole notion of like, you know, the return on life, just the, we even talk about eternal rate of return as opposed to, you know, IRR and just, we have all kinds of stories like that, Tommy, where people are trading money for experiences. And we think about it in four quadrants, you've got financial assets, but you also have relationship assets, you have legacy assets, and you have experience assets. If you think about those four things in a quadrant, the magic in the middle is the intersection of all of your assets when you can truly align your relationships, your legacy, your experiences, and your finances—that's true significance. And that's just our part of our job is their guide is to lead them down that path.
1: I love that, Scott. How does that show up when you're actually talking with clients about the relationship side of that? The you know the legacy side. I I love that you're doing it. I would submit it's not special from a financial advisory world standpoint i think most good firms out there at least focus a lot on legacy and you know how are we going to use these assets either while we're alive or how are we going to use them after we're not alive but these two aspects of the relationships and also the experience that's different i don't hear that from a lot of firms How are you guys actually pushing into
0: relationships for clients? How are you pushing into experiences for clients? Yeah, it's just engaging with them, Tommy, as you know, and you do it every day, is trying to understand who are the relationships that are important. Who are they? Like, literally, who are they? Let's map them out. Let's try to figure out how do you feel like you're doing in your relationships? And then just strategize what could we do To enhance these relationships, sometimes it's money related. Sometimes we need to trade dollars to enhance relationships to create time. And sometimes it's non monetarily related, but it's identifying and spending time with people, knowing them so well that you know the people in their life and who they value. And then every time you meet with them, you're asking them about all four quadrants how are we doing in these areas? And not just generally, not how are your relationships, but How's Billy? How's Bobby? How are your grandkids? How do you feel like you're connecting with them? Is there anything that you're not doing that you believe that you could to enhance that relationship? So I just think it's a mindset. Same thing with experiences is what experiences are you having? What experiences are you not having? And where should we invest our time, talent and treasure? We talk about the three T's all the time to enhance the return in your relationships, your experiences, or, or even your legacy. And not that, like you said, it's most financial advisors should be talking about legacy. But I had a client about 10 years ago, asked himself a question in front of me that really rattled me when he said, we're not struggling with how much to give away. We're actually struggling with how much to keep. And even to the point that he thought about doing what he called a reverse tithe, And living on 10% of his net worth and giving the other 90% away. And that was radical thinking. And we're not promoting that everybody should do that or even aspire to do that. But just being in the room with people who have that mindset about eternal legacy, long lasting, 50, 100 year legacies. It's super inspiring to be with people who think that way. You
1: know, Scott, I love this. I love that you're clearly unashamed about your faith and how that really translates and permeates across your entire life, whether it's for your family or into your business. But a lot of what you've talked about incorporates that faith into your business. Is there an expectation that clients that work with Mosaic also share a worldview that comes from a faith standpoint, or is that unnecessary?
0: Yeah, no, that is not necessary to be a client of Mosaic. I think we have the opportunity, most of our clients understand our value system and where it comes from. And candidly, I think it crews to the benefit of our clients because of that value system. They hopefully benefit from that, but that is not a screen in that we only want to work with people who have aligned faith that's the same as ours. We have clients of all kinds of different religions or don't believe in any sort of God at all, but... But I, I think we can have healthy dialogue around that. And we love that. We love to engage in those conversations with people because I always say everybody has faith in something. Everybody values something. And so our job is to understand what do you value, Mr. and Mrs. Client, and how do we come alongside you to make sure that we're aligning your resources with what you value? But no, it's, we, we're, we do not have a screen to work with as a client of Mosaic.
1: Awesome. Scott, as you were talking about the way that you integrate the relationship and the experience side, it really kind of made me think of it's almost like you're understanding the client's balance sheet on a relationship by relationship basis. You know, where are these relationships strong? Where do we have this regretful deficit? Maybe with a grown child that we're estranged from or a friend that we've lost touch with. And I love that you're not just saying, "Hey clients, we need to go earn you the maximum return." And, and I know, I know your investment process enough to know how seriously you take that, but I love that this side, the relational side, is such a focus and I think it's really special to your firm and I think it comes from that deep faith that you have. So I'm I'm glad that shows up. And I love that you don't care where somebody else is coming from, that you just want to help them accomplish what they value most. And that's just, it's so admirable. Scott, we're moving into my favorite segment of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question I want to know. And then the second is the real question that everybody wants to know. And and we'll have... Uh, People understand how to get in touch with you at Mosaic. But my question for today, what I want to know, you mentioned early on that you had a Bobby Knight story, and I would love to hear the Bobby Knight story.
0: Well, for folks in Indiana, obviously, Bobby Knight was, was the guy for a long time. My dad went to North Central High School in Indianapolis. Damon Bailey was my hero growing up. So it was always my dream to go to play at an Indiana University. Didn't have the opportunity to do that. But I played for a team called Athletes in Action when I was done with college. And we were an exhibition team of pro and college athletes. And we actually played Indiana in Assembly Hall when I was right out of school. And so there's 18,000 people, it's sold out. And after the game, we're going through the the line. And my, my dream my whole life was to play for Bobby Knight in Indiana. And we're going through the line and he shakes my hand and he grabs my arm and he looks at me right in the eyes very intently and said, you're a heck of a player. He said you should have come here and played for me and little did he know that my dad called the indiana basketball office like 10 times to try to get them to recruit me and they didn't and so in that moment after he said that i thought this is probably my one and only encounter with bobby knight so as he walked by me i actually grabbed his arm and spun him around a little bit we're about the same size he's a little heavier than me but we're about eye to eye and i spun him around And I said, coach, if you had recruited me, I'd have been here. And he laughed and walked away. And that was my only encounter with Bobby Knight. But I I thought for a second, I grabbed his arm and I spun him around. And I'm like, I probably shouldn't be grabbing Bobby Knight's arm. But it just kind of caught me in the moment. And that's my Bobby Knight story.
1: That's fantastic. You know, my favorite case study at Harvard Business School was all about Bobby Knight and Coach K, by far my favorite professor at HBS. He was the one that actually wrote the case study for business schools on Coach K and Bobby Knight. And it's because he had played for both of them. So he grew up, grew up going to camps where Bobby Knight was at. And then he actually played for Army when Coach K was there at West Point. And so he had played for both guys. And so he built the case study and I won't spoil it for anyone, but it is my favorite business school case study. And it's very, very relevant for 2022 where we're recording today, because what it's talking about is at the time the case study was written, you have both coaches with almost identical professional track records, wins, championships. Obviously, Coach K has gone on to, you know, jumped ahead of Bobby Knight in a kind of all-time roster there. But at the time, they were almost identical. But you see in one coach's case, faculty and students are camped outside this person's house, chanting to get them fired. And in the other coach's case, They're considering leaving to go coach the LA Lakers and you have students and faculty and staff all camped outside their house, begging them to stay. And the question of the case study is, what was the difference? Why did you have such a cultural difference in reactions? And again, I don't want to spoil it because it is my favorite business school case study. But for any of our listeners who nerd out about that stuff, go get it. Go get those case studies And I think you'll pretty quickly be able to figure out what the difference between the two guys was. And by the way, by all accounts, they were the same men behind closed doors in the locker room. So don't let yourself think that it was just that Coach K was so much more mild-mannered and not as aggressive as Bobby Knight. Don't let yourself think that was it for a moment. That's not what it was. It was something very different. But Scott, the more important question, I'm sure from our listeners that somebody out there really is in that camp where they are a high-capacity leader. They have achieved some incredible success. And they like this thought of being more intentional about moving into significance and especially being more intentional about using their resources to enhance their relationships and their experiences and to have someone like you in their corner and, and not just Scott, by the way, his entire team is just absolutely top notch. I've gotten to meet several of them and I, I'm just so impressed. I actually got to train one of them. So that's a different story, but absolutely love their team. Think the world of everybody that Scott has. They wouldn't be on his team if they weren't an absolutely incredible advisor or industry player. So Scott, if somebody's listening and they do like that idea, what's the best way for them to get in touch with your team at Mosaic?
0: Yeah, no, thank you for asking. Yeah, we love working with high capacity executives, entrepreneurs, people who have a fair amount of complexity in their life and certainly in their financial life. And if any of this would resonate with any of them, we'd love to connect with them. Certainly go to our website at mosaicwealth.com. Or email us directly at info at mosaicwealth.com and we will get right back to you if, if you reach out that way. So multiple ways to, to reach out to us, Tommy. And thanks so much for uh, just what you said. And again, I've learned a lot from you. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Scott. And listeners, more than anything, we appreciate you. Appreciate you joining us. You again have just made this show successful beyond my wildest expectations And we couldn't do it without you. So thanks for being here. And we hope to see you back next week on Beyond the Ordinary.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.